P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. All right, let's uh, get a king of radio and all media, Paul Sweeney, into the conversation. He is our director of North American Research and media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Paul, spread a little intelligence for us. we got a big week. Let's start off with 20th Century Fox. Right. They say it's 21st Century. Right. It used to be. They right, could, right. But they also use 20th Century Fox, I believe, still as part of one of their That's brands. That's the studio, right. Exactly. Because yeah. so yeah. I, I, I looked at it over the weekend. Go ahead. Yeah, it is confusing, but they're convinced it was a great name change. Uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a great week for, for big, big media, all the big media companies reporting. And, you know, the stocks have generally done uh, pretty well uh, over, you know, year to date and over the last 12 months. And I think, uh, but the big issue for uh, media investors is this whole concept of cord cutting and what it means to the economics of, uh, you know, the cable network business in particular and the broadcast network as, as, as well. If, if people are cutting the cord, does that mean less uh, viewers, means less advertising, which means uh, less affiliate fees? And if so, what's the trajectory of that downward decline um, in, in those kinds of numbers? And that's what investors are trying to get a handle on. Okay, well, so we're going to get earnings from 20, uh, First Century Fox, Disney, Time Warner, Viacom. Which company is the most important to watch to get a sense of just how much cord cutting is happening? I think Disney's probably the, the, the big one simply because they have the uh, biggest cable network in ESPN, the most valuable cable network in ESPN. And it was Disney a little over two years ago that really started the whole concern, the whole issue of cord cutting and the fact that it was in fact impacting uh, the cable television business when they said that even the mighty ESPN was losing subscribers uh, and that it would cause Disney to uh, reduce their uh, profit forecast for ESPN uh, going forward. So that really brought home to media investors that, gee, this cord cutting thing is real. It's right now and it's impacting the businesses for these companies. So uh, now what investors are trying to do ever since that uh, point in time a couple of years ago is try to get a sense of, again, the, the rate of decline of pay TV subscribers in the U.S. Uh, and if you're a bear, then you think that rate of decline is steep and you think it's going to be long term and you've you've gotten out of these stocks. If you're more more bullish, I think a lot of it, and I think that's what's happened with the stocks. A lot of investors have said, OK, we know that cord cutting is happening, but it's going to be a very gradual decline. It's nothing that's going to uh, crush these businesses in the near term. Uh, so let's try to pick some winners and losers. And then the other thing that's happening is um, we're starting to see some of these media companies go direct to consumer over the internet, much like Netflix does, with some of their own offerings like HBO Now from uh, Time Warner's AHBO. Uh, and some of the other cable networks have done that. Some of the other networks have been joining some of these skinny bundles like Sling Television. So I think investors are saying, Cord cutting is an issue. It's a problem. Uh, the fraying of the big cable TV bundle is a negative issue for this industry. But there are degrees of um, how this is going to play out, and there's going to be some winners and losers. Um, and I think investors are just trying to figure out who those companies are. 
Is 21st Century Fox a winner? I'm looking at the stock here. This was a $24 stock in September. We're now over 31. We're going to get the results. Uh, Super Bowl coverage. Uh, Do they have all the pieces to make this work? Yeah, it's funny. 21st Century Fox owning the Fox uh, Network. Very happy this morning after the overtime game uh, last night. A lot more advertising inventory to sell at very high prices. So they love the fact that it was the first Super Bowl to go the o- overtime. Uh, but generally speaking, I think uh, most Fox investors feel pretty good about the story because the company has a lot of international exposure. They're one of the biggest companies in terms of international exposure uh, with their pay TV business globally in India and Asia and uh, all through Europe. And the the bullish case there is that the pay TV industry outside of the U.S. is uh, is more of a growth story than it is in the U.S. The U.S. it's again it's a mature business susceptible to cord cutting. In other parts of the world, it's still a growth business. And Fox, along with Discovery Communications, are the two companies that are probably best exposed to the global growth of pay television. You know, last night when I was watching the Super Bowl with my seven year old son, he said to me, "These advertisements they they are all so dramatic." He said, "Do they actually work?" <laughs> right. And 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 I'm wondering, you know, at a time when more eyeballs are on the internet than on a particular channel. Is there some kind of evaluation of how much these ads work, and are they less willing to pay the advertisers less willing to pay uh, premium fees uh, for for displaying their ads? Yeah, the uh, you know the global advertising business is about a six hundred and fifty billion dollar a year business. It grows about three to four to five percent a year. Uh, within that. Uh, internet advertising is clearly the big growth story. It's growing at about 15% per year. So share of advertising globally over the last 10 years has dramatically shifted from traditional media uh, to digital media. Uh, you think about search, you think about Google, you think about uh, social platforms like Facebook. Those are the platforms that are really getting uh, the incremental ad dollars. That being said, though, uh, and part of the reason they're getting the incremental ad dollars is that it's easier for them to prove to advertisers that uh, – your audience did click on this ad. Um, we can prove to you who it was and that, that they actually saw the ad and so on and so forth. So some of the metrics around um, proving the effect, uh, effectiveness of advertising a little bit better for digital advertising. However, as we saw with the Super Bowl last night, you put a big audience together on television and advertisers will line up to pay $5 million for a 30-second spot. So the real challenge for the traditional media is to be able to, again, continue to aggregate big audiences and big is different today than it was 30 years ago. Uh, but you know, aggregate big audiences and advertisers will show up um, with ad dollars. So the television business is still performing very well relative to the internet because Two reasons. One, it's video. And number two, it's still big audiences aggregated. I just keep thinking of the sunk costs that exist in, let's say, the television and broadcast distribution markets and the cable markets, as opposed to the internet-based systems that Facebook is able to take advantage of, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're piggybacking. I kind of wonder at what point does someone play hardball with Facebook and said, you know, you're not going to have anything to write about unless you recognize that we're providing that content. Well, yeah, Facebook, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg just recently in in the last one or two quarters has really changed how he's positioning the company uh, both to just just to the world in general. He's calling it a video first company, a video centric company. He recognizes that the fastest growing advertising stream on the internet is online video. And so he is positioning his company, pivoting, pivoting his company there. So is Snapchat, a company that's about to go public, really focusing on video. 
Yeah, well, I mean, who wants to read anymore anyway? Paul Sweeney, right. thank you so much for joining us. Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior, uh, senior Media and Internet Analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. I'm just still stuck on that 15% uh, growth in Internet ad spending. It's just yeah. sort of an amazing. $650 billion a year. Now, I'd like to learn a little bit more about Chipotle Mexican Grill because the shares, Lisa Abramowitz, are down a little bit more than, let's say, five, five and a half percent, uh, depending upon whether you're looking at the open today or the close on Friday. Why? Well, it was a cover story in Barron's, and I just got to ask our next guest, Scott Rothbord, president, founder, Lakeview Asset Management, uh, also a professor of finance uh, at uh, Seton Hall University's uh, Stillman School of Business. Scott Rothbord. Board, uh, C- CMG. What, what's the future for Chipotle? Uh, the future for Chipotle is that it needs to seriously take a step back and reevaluate its business model. <clears throat> this is a company that was far ahead of the rest of the pack for many years. It was uh, trading at a multiple, which was almost twice, if not more than, uh, its growth rate. <clears throat> they had some problems two years ago. Um, but management—that's st- pretty mild, I must say. They had yes. some problems. Yeah, I mean, they had. On. They had. Okay. Um, <laughs> People were uh, sickened a, a, by eating some of their food. Well, th- th- there was two problems. W- w- one was that some people who ate their food um, did catch some sort of uh, disease, and also there was a problem with sourcing um, their pork products. All right now, this is a company whose mantra is uh, food with integrity. Well, <clears throat> people are saying, "Well, where's the integrity here?" Um, and, and so it's, it's been, it's been on a decline. Uh, they try to support, uh, the business and the stock through couponing and, 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 and through other methods. Were you ever long the stock? I I was long the stock years ago. Okay. And it was, and you rode the wave. Rode the wave. Right. Yes. Okay. Now. I went short a few weeks ago. You went short the stock. Yes. Um, You don't think they can really pull out of this without a big major change? I I think the stock is going to have to basically gravitate down towards an industry multiple of 18 to 22 times earnings. Right, so it's about 400 bucks a share right now, 398. At, if you look at the broader backdrop, uh, Scott, you're not particularly positive generally on the whole restaurant sector. Are no, you? no, we're, we're not. We, we, um, we, we run a, a special restaurant and food portfolio. I also have a newsletter uh, on the restaurant and food industry. And uh, we are now, in terms of restaurants themselves, uh, we're at our lowest exposure to restaurants in, in many years. Why? Uh, we just don't think there's value. They had a tremendous run the later part of last year. Probably got overvalued. Uh, and we just don't see that the appetite, so to speak, uh, for the consumer <laughs> uh, is there uh, in the restaurant space. Um, and so um, uh, so we're, we're, it has begun to pull back this year. We think it'll pull back a little bit more. And I'm expecting, just like last year, uh, a back-ended year for the restaurant stocks. But when I look at something like Chipotle, that stock has has, has bigger problems, and I see this really coming down even further. Um, and I think the management needs to do a few things. First of all, reevaluate its menu, which is stale. Um, it needs to uh, also um, stop moving into other concepts like Chop House, Asian Fusion, uh, and a pizza concept. I mean, there's enough pizza concepts out there. 
Um, and I, I just think I just think that 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 they've lost their way, and that that happens to a lot of companies. All right, tell me a company that's found their way that most investors have overlooked. Companies found a way that, that most investors have overlooked in in the restaurant space or any space. I was looking at at Kraft Heinz, but uh, you you tell us. Well, I I I, I really think that uh, companies you should be focusing in on are lower down in the food chain. Go think, for it. I think we've got to look at the agricultural companies, and and we own some of them: Archer Daniels, Midland, Bungie, um, the Andersons, companies that are 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 processing manufacturing the food because we still need food whether we're going to eat it at a restaurant or we're going to eat it at home okay we still need the food and we still need the process and produce the, the, the basic food stuffs although how vulnerable are these companies to changes in policy particularly trade i think that they are more vulnerable to uh, commodity prices and commodity prices are very much um, in tune with currency prices um, but again, there, there's more to it than that, because uh, when you look at these companies, the, the commodity prices uh, have a great deal of exposure to uh, things such as weather patterns. Um, so, so th- th- there's do you a buy, lot. There. Do you buy these home delivery businesses? You know where they do make the food and it's delivered at, uh, to your home that you cook it at home Blue freshly, apron, right? For yes, uh, I, I, I think that's that's a very urban concept. I think there's more to the world than just New York and L.A. and Chicago and um, I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I right. live now full time out in Las Vegas. Um, we do still have a home here in New Jersey and in upstate New York. Um, I think when you look in between the coasts, there's just no appetite, so to speak. Again, I have to use that term for, for, for those type of concepts. Um, look, I, I think yeah. open table was a great idea. Um, and that was taken over by Priceline, which we own. Thank you so much, Scott Rothbart, president and founder of Lakeview Asset Management uh, in New Jersey and also Las Vegas, also a professor at Seton Hall University. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Select from over 500 fabrics to suit your personal taste. Shirts start from $85 and are delivered in just two weeks. With Proper Cloth's perfect fit guarantee, remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. I want to imagine what is going to happen with the shipping industry this year and what that might tell us about global trade and the economy. I want to bring in uh, John Wobensmith, president of Genco Shipping in New York City. Uh, And John, this has been sort of one of the big mysteries. The dry bulk market for uh, several years after the crisis was really kind of sounding alarms about the state of the global economy. We've seen a little bit of a recovery. Uh, What is it telling us right now? Well, what it's telling us is that uh, we are continuing to see uh, growth on the Chinese side, iron ore and coal going into China. You know, one of the one of the big misnomers, I think, is that as freight rates um, collapsed in dry bulk shipping and probably bottomed in the first quarter of 2016, it was not necessarily a global demand issue. It was more of the supply of ships that are on the water. The sector was overbuilt. And so now what we're seeing is 
those ships are being absorbed into the market from growth and demand. We're seeing a real slowdown on the number of ships that are that are delivering. So the supply and demand balance is finally starting to uh, to come back into play. So look forward about four quarters and tell me where you think you're going to be. Because, I mean, I'm going back, and we go back a long time. So 2014, uh, Jenko stock was uh, a lot different than it is today. It's a nine, you know $9 a share, $9.13. But this was you know a $200 stock at one time. Yeah, no, look, a lot that, has happened. A lot, a lot, of, a lot, a lot, lot of ships have passed under that bridge. A lot has happened. And again, as I said, it, it really has been a supply issue. There were so many ships that were delivered 2014, 2015, and even last year. And now that uh, those, that delivery schedule is really starting to come off. Just to give an example, you know, this is the lowest order book that we have seen since 2003, with only 9% of the fleet on order. And we only expect 1% to 2% of the fleet delivered delivering this year. And you back that up on the demand side where you're talking 2 to 3% growth. So again, you're finally starting to see the beginnings of a, of a cyclical recovery. Do you think that some of this protectionist uh, sort of wave that's sweeping a lot of different countries and this feeling uh, of anti-global trade could uh, potentially derail this recovery that we're seeing? Well, I think what you have to what you have to focus on is is think about what China is actually importing. Um, and by the way, it, with the exception of, of soybeans, um, really nothing is being exported from the U.S. into China. It's mostly coming out of Brazil into China on the iron ore front, Australia into China on the iron ore front, Australia into China on the coal front. And those are the growth areas that, that we're seeing. So I, I, don't, I don't feel that protectionism, whatever may come down the road, would affect those trades. And the interesting thing is what we're seeing is volume increases, particularly now out of Brazil. Most of the volume increases um, over the last few years has come out of Australia, which is a shorter trade route into China. And they've been taking market share away from the Brazilian producers. Now the Brazilian producers look like they're going to be able to claw back some of that market share. And Brazil to China takes twice as long. So these ships are out of action for, for longer, and that should lift freight rates. Uh, the uh, the specific uh, routes that the, that you take, I mean, just give people a little idea of, you know, what you're actually moving, how long some, you know, the ships, just uh, how big is the fleet and so on? Well, so Genco, um, just taking a step back for a second, we actually did raise equity and refinance our bank debt in November of last year. And the whole idea was to position the company in a position of strength for a recovering market. So you look at what Genco is doing. We have 60 ships today on the water. We have our very large ships, which are cape-sized ships that are predominantly shipping iron ore and coal. Again, from Brazil into China, Australia into China. And then we also have exposure to what we call the minor bulks, which is your grains, your, your gypsum, your sugar, your salt, cement, those type of products that we're also seeing growth on in terms of just normal GDP growth around the world. So you have amazing insight into what the true growth is in China. I would imagine you're singularly positioned to do that. Um, do you think that a lot of the discussion that has been happening about uh, China's economy slowing down materially and that any growth that we're seeing is really coming from government stimulus and their money propping up the markets, do you think that that's accurate? Or do you, are we actually seeing um, some steadying of, uh, of, of growth in China? I think you're seeing steadying of growth in China, but make no mistake, a lot of this is infrastructure spending, right? That is what drives the steel industry. That is what drives iron ore imports. With public money. 
with with public money. That's absolutely correct. Um, and uh, you know what what has also been happening though is you've been you've seen some consolidation on the steel industry. It moving more into private hands, which is obviously good for the economy as a whole. Um, and then just switching gears on the coal side again, coal volumes into China imports dropped thirty percent in two thousand fifteen. They are for 2016. They've actually been up 25 percent. So that has actually been helpful as well. And that is a cleaner product, the coal coming out of Australia going into China, than actual domestic Chinese coal. So that's been helpful also. Any uh, any pushback? Any thoughts about the uh, new uh, trade policies as expressed by uh, President Trump? Uh, I mean, you traveling around the world, you know a lot of people in uh, high levels of business. What's been the reaction? Look, I think I think it's a cautionary reaction. I mean, as I said, in terms of dry bulk shipping, um, we don't see too much of, a, of an effect that will take place because the Chinese will be importing iron ore from Brazil and Australia. The coal will be coming in. Um, on the grain side, China still needs wheat, still needs soybeans. Those will come in. Um, I think the real question is what happens on, on the finished goods side, right, come from China into, into the U.S.? But that's a different industry from what we're involved in. What's the uh, biggest risk for you this year? Look, I think um, I think the biggest risk, in, and it's always been this, and, and that is China, right? And and the steel industry. Um, again, we're seeing firm steel prices. We're seeing growth on the steel side, and all of that. You know, you you then get into the iron ore imports coming into China, and I can't stress this enough. Um, because, you know, you see a lot of news articles out there that talk about, you know, China slowing down. But we saw iron imports up 6.5% last year. We expect growth rates of 4 to 5% this year. And as I said, a lot of that's going to be coming out of Brazil on the growth side, which is a longer haul trade. You have to wonder how much of that is coming from a, a sustainable growth in government spending or not. But we shall see. U.S. banks, particularly the six biggest, could return more than $100 billion in capital to investors uh, through share buybacks and other measures as a result of the removal of some of the Dodd-Frank provisions. I want to bring in Charles Peabody, Managing Director and Research Analyst at Compass Point Research and Trading in New York City to get a sense of how realistic it is uh, that shareholders will see this kind of incredible uh, capital redistribution back to them. Uh, Charles, do you think that this sort of seems like a likely possibility for shareholders in the short term? In the short term, no. Um, you know, over an extended period of time, it's it's likely um, very possible. Um, but if you take Citigroup, which I think in that article said they had excess of $27.5 billion of capital, that would require them reducing their common equity tier one ratio by 200 basis points. And I don't think the regulators view the company as that less complex today um, to, to allow that. Even if there is some kind of overhaul of Dodd-Frank? Uh, yeah, even if there is some overhaul. I mean, a 200 basis point reduction in their common equity tier one capital ratio would get you that $27 billion. That's a lot of capital. Um, decline. And, and again, I don't know what the assumptions are behind this, but, you know, there, is an, there seems to be an assumption that the world is a steady state, positive place. 
and therefore earnings grow and capital grows. Well, we saw in the fourth quarter that capital was actually destroyed at both Citigroup and Bank America because of higher rates. I want you to go a little bit more deeply into that, the connection between those higher rates and the 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 capital requirements, but also just uh, maybe you could help us understand the value that we're talking about. Uh, is it based on analysis or is it based on last trade, for example? Tim, I'm not sure what you mean by that, on that last question. Well, you, just the, just the fact that you know you, when you don't have a uh, marketplace for many of the securities or many of the assets, uh, that can affect their value. Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, you know, there are two two questions you asked. One, in terms of the how, why capital is destroyed as rates rise, is you create these unrealized losses in your debt security portfolio. Um, and there, there are other minor adjustments as well. Um, and, and so when you assume, you know, higher earnings power, you're probably assuming a higher rate environment and, and better margins, but that has unintended consequences to what happens to your shareholders' equity. So we saw book value at both B of A and at Citigroup decline in the fourth quarter and regulatory capital actually decline in absolute dollar terms. Um, so in terms of what you are alluding to, in, in a environment where debt spreads widen out, which you, I think you'll see as the economic activity matures, um, you're going to see a migration from what we call level one assets to level two assets to level three assets. And level three assets, as they grow, require that you hold more capital, that you can't return as much. Right. Charles, we've heard some discussion that one provision of the Dodd-Frank Act that Congress is going to target will be the Volcker Rule, uh, which prohibits banks from trading uh, with their own money. I'm wondering, from your perspective, do you think that if the Volcker Rule is overturned, that the biggest U.S. banks would restart their prop trading desks and have the, uh, the desire to go back to using their own money to make markets? You know, I, I think the banks want um, reduced reporting requirements as it relates to their trading operations. Um, but, yeah, I think there are pockets where they will. For, for example, I've heard the banks um, say they would like to be um, more free in, in how they um, trade and hedge their treasury portfolios. As, as you know, under the Volcker Rule, they still can do take pr- proprietary positions in cash trading, but they can in derivatives trading. And so they would like, I think, to be able to use the derivatives trading of treasuries to hedge and, and their positioning. And that would be good for volume in those contracts, I would imagine, right? So we're talking it, about... It probably would, Tim, yes. Yeah. I think you're right. And, and add some liquidity to the marketplace. What about other markets? Do you think that they're going to sort of rev up their prop, prop desks? I'd be surprised if they did it in the commodity space. Um, as you know, most of them did divest themselves of their physical commodity um, business. You know, energy is probably one area where they might come back. Um, but I, I, I think the CEOs are actually thankful that they don't have to um, compete on, on a prop basis. Well, it certainly levels the playing field if you can't play. Well done. Thanks very much, Charles Peabody, Managing Director, Research Analyst, Compass Point Research and Trading. I just got to say that uh, I've never met anyone who knows as much about the banking industry as Charles Peabody. He's great.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.